welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, my friend, what's going on today? Not so much, Steve. What is going on today? It is really warm here in Asheville, unseasonably warm. We had like uh, yesterday 65 and sunny, and today's like 55, 58 and sunny. So we've been getting outside quite a bit and um, enjoying the nice weather. It's just crazy that we're in like the dead of winter and I was outside in shorts and a t-shirt today. That is what you call a Texas winter every day. So you can run shirtless, but it's just cool enough where it's nice and comfortable. Um, So speaking of snow. Yeah, there you go. We're going to talk a little bit about winter and snow today. (laughs) Yes, let's turn off all of our listeners by talking about the weather. But in actuality, we're going to talk about an accomplishment, which I think, or both of us think, that uh, demonstrates some qualities that are important regardless of, you know, your performance or your endeavor you're pursuing. So, Brad, why don't you tee it up? Yeah, this accomplishment happened in the snow. So, um, I guess when this podcast comes out, it'll have been a week or two ago, a team in really two teams of Nepali climbers had a first winter ascent up K2. And K2 is known as the last crown jewel of big mountain climbing Um, in particular, a winter ascent. So prior to these Nepalis, no one has set foot on the top of K2 in the winter. And this has not been for lack of trying. Uh, Many have tried and failed. Some failures have resulted in injury and even death. It is an extremely challenging mountain to climb at any point of the year, and particularly in winter, owing itself to visibility, temperature, and wind conditions. So I was reading that when the Nepalis summited, it was negative 70 Fahrenheit, and they chose that window because it was a good weather day. (laughs) It's kind of mind-blowing. And and two stats that uh, I read while looking into this story that kind of get this across is that... um, more people have been to outer outer space than have stood on the summit, regardless of season of K2, which is just kind of mind-blowing. That tells you how difficult it is. Yeah, and that's even and, like in peak climbing conditions, right? Um, right. It, it, and then you're looking at the death uh, toll, which you talked about. And generally, if you look at Mount Everest, it, it varies, but it's about about 1% of climbers um, die, unfortunately. And K2, it's shockingly close to almost uh, one-to-one in terms of summit to, for every climber who reaches the summit, one dies, which is just kind of kind of nuts. And again, this, we're talking summits. This is not in the winter, significantly harder in the winter. So that ratio has been only deaths to summits. And no one climbs K2 as like a, you know, um, I'm the man or I'm the woman bucket list. 
kind of thing, like Everest, people that climb to tend to be very serious climbers. So in many ways, it's even more astounding just how challenging and dangerous of a mountain um, it is. And um, I think this Nepali first ascent is notable for a few reasons. The first is that Nepali, and in particular Sherpa people, um, have been the unsung heroes, the backbone of so many first ascent and dramatic climbing missions, and they get no credit for it because they are acting as Sherpas, which literally means they are carrying up the stuff of other climbers all the way to the highest camp, sometimes even beyond, and there's just not enough room on the summit, so they don't set foot on the summit. And generally speaking, it's a white person of European descent that sets foot on the summit instead of them. So this was one of the first big prize climbs in mountaineering where Nepalis took the summit before anyone. And the second reason, at least to me, Steve, you might have others to add that this is quite remarkable, is climbing, and in particular, these kinds of historic climbs, it's a very individualistic sport. So yes, you have often multiple teams of climbers. But once you get towards the top, it's, it's a super big deal. Like who should be the first climber to set foot and get in the record book? And on this mission, not only did an entire team of Nepalis decide to hold hands, sing the national anthem, and summit at the same time, but two teams of Nepali climbers met up and helped each other to summit at the same time. And again, this is so counter to how climbing normally works, where different teams will compete for weather windows or for certain routes um, or for timing to get to the top. So almost always when you hear about mayhem on a mountain like Everest, it's because you had multiple teams and expeditions basically competing for different um, windows of opportunity and it ends in disaster. Whereas in this case, everyone dropped their egos, the two teams combined, and we'll include in the show notes, there's just a video that's so freaking extraordinary and touching of these 10 Nepali men singing their national anthem, walking the last 10 meters to the summit of K2 in the winter. Yeah, it really is amazing. And I suggest all listeners um, take a minute, literally one minute, and, and watch that video because it's a, it's moving and powerful. And that's why, you know, Brad and I wanted to cover this topic because I think it's such a clear, great example of what happens when... Um, individuals can put their egos aside and work together as a team to accomplish something amazing. In this case, something that is extremely dangerous and has never, you know, ever been done before, uh, which is awesome. And then on the side note, which I think we'll get to before is just the, the decades and decades of work that uh, Sherpas have, have done almost unrecognized uh, to a degree based on some of their peers who have, had uh, you know gotten credit? I think that's a topic worth exploring as well. Yeah, I agree. Great agenda, Steve. Where should we start? Which one of those two topics? I think we go with the. Uh, let's go with the purpose. Okay. The yeah. So leaving your ego behind. Yep. Yeah. Well, what comes to mind first? No surprise is this was a big section in our first book, Peak Performance. Um, and I think it's worth glossing over as a refresher for those who have read the book and then as a quick primer for those who haven't. Um, the really interesting science behind ego and losing your ego. 
And in short, what happens is this. The more we are pursuing something or performing from a place of self and ego, usually the more fearful, hesitant we become. And that's because in the brain, the ego, which is our literal self, evolved with really only one mission. And that was to take care of ourselves and protect ourselves. So the more caught up we are in self, again, the worse we'll perform, the less constructive risks we'll take because we're so worried about protecting ourselves. So when climbing a mountain, this might look like being reckless because you are so caring about your ego or the opposite, not going for the summit because you're scared something bad's going to happen to you. In daily life, this often looks like not getting the most out of yourself because you're scared of being embarrassed, of failing, stuff like that. Whereas when you can get beyond your ego and connect your identity to something beyond yourself, you tend to shed those fear and doubts, also recklessness, and you hone in on the ability to take constructive risks and generally peak performance. Um, fill in, Steve, maybe with some of the interesting studies uh, around like how this actually works in the brain. I think that's also fascinating. Yeah, it's it's really interesting um, because the ego, or when you're able to put your ego aside, essentially, it's like you said, you're you're freeing yourself up um, from failure. You're freeing yourself up to perform because if you look at how how we handle, let's say, uh, fatigue or discomfort, for example, if you look at the latest science behind that. Um, there's always more to give, right? We never quite max out our ability. Even if you're the world's fastest miler, you never quite get to your physiological limits per se. And the basic theory behind that is that your brain almost acts as a governor um, saying, hey, we're getting really close to redlining, to putting ourselves in danger from to overheating or running out of fuel or our muscles, you know, contracting so much they're they're at the point of failure. So instead of getting to that point, which we know is coming, we're gonna we're gonna start to shut you down early, right? Well, that gap between what we're capable of and where we get shut down is there's some wiggle room in there. It's almost like the you know, the light that comes on in your car that tells you, hey, you're low on fuel. Well, if you've been driving long enough, you know that, hey, you know, I've probably got another 15, 20, 25, maybe even 30, 30 miles before I'm actually empty. Um, if you have one of those fancy cars, sometimes it will tell you you have zero miles left to go on your gas, even though you can go further, right? Your brain works in much the same way, just like your car is trying to protect you, telling you're out of fuel before you actually are, um, so that you don't end up on the side of the highway out of out of gas. Well, your brain does the same thing. It, but the interesting thing is, the more meaning that it has, something has behind it, the more we can kind of let our ego go and have something be um, superordinate or, uh, you know, a purpose that is greater than ourselves, the more kind of slack on the line our brain lets us have. So we can push further, we can handle more discomfort, 
Um, we can last a little bit longer at a certain pace or in a race. So it's just, it's, it's just kind of fascinating. And in the book we talked about and peak performance, we talked about examples, which often get kind of chided, but are actually real to a large degree is that, you know, mothers doing incredible things when their child is in danger, for example, lifting a part of a, a, a car, which they might not be capable of if you just said, hey, just go lift this wheel up. But there's several documented instances where they can. Um, and it's these feats of uh, extraordinary strength or superhuman strength. Uh, the reason that's capable is because their governor has kind of shut down and freed himself to perform because the child saving it is more important than any uh, short-term damage. And when you say governor, you mean central governor, right? Steve is in their their brain. Yeah, so that's uh, not getting into the weeds too much because there's a lot of theories on this stuff. But yes, you're looking at your brain is acting as the like controlling mechanism governor um, trying to, you know, make sure uh, you're okay. And you, you can see this to a small degree. We'll segue into running because that's the, I think what I know best and also demonstrates this best. But if you have a chance to win at the end of a race, right? What happens? You get, you get, you're able to kick at the end. You're able to push it a little bit more. You're able to dig into those depths of fatigue a little bit more than let's say if you were losing or falling off the pack, for example. And if you watch enough races, you see this. And the reason is simple, right? Your brain essentially says, Hey, We've only got one lap left in this race and we're pretty close to winning and winning is really important. So we might as well push the limits a little bit. Well, if, you know, you've got one lap left in the race and you're looking and you're, you know, 30 meters behind the opponent and have no, no shot, let's say, of catching them, your brain might say, yeah, you know what? You are where you are. It's not worth it. Like, this is what you got. So we're not going to give you that extra little boost. Sure. And in the case of, egolessness, what we're saying is that you get a little bit of an extra boost just from releasing from like a strong tie into oneself. And the other area where you see this is in flow states. So flow being those moments when you're totally in the zone, completely absorbed in what you're doing, perceptions of time and space change, everything is clicking. And perhaps the foundational quality of a flow state is you lose touch with yourself. So it's like you don't even know what just happened, right? You get off the bike and you're like, whoa, four hours passed, but I don't even realize what happened. Or you finish a block of writing and it's like, oh my God, I just wrote for half a day and I was so in the zone, I forgot to eat. Um, You're falling in love with someone. Like There's these moments in life where we tend to really be at our best in different ways and what they all have in common is we lose touch with our ego, with our sense of self. So regardless of what angle you come at this from, there are tons of benefits to shedding a sense of self and shedding attachment to ego when it comes to performance and, I'd argue, enjoyment. And what you saw on top of K2 a few weeks ago was these climbers deciding that this is about something beyond themselves. It's about them as a unit, as a team, And even beyond that, it's about pride for their country. And even beyond that, for a lineage of people, 
that have been the backbone of climbing for so long. And I have no doubt in my mind that tapping... I mean, they, I shouldn't say no doubt. What I'm going to say is I have no doubt in my mind that tapping into that helped them. Who knows if they wouldn't have summited without that? I mean, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback and say that's the reason they summited and not all these you know, European or American climbers that were attempting it. But that might not be true. There's a gazillion factors that go into a successful feat like that. But I do think one of them was um, just the joining up, the doing it together, and the, 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 the leaving the self behind. Yeah, I mean, and you see this with good teams, regardless of its sport or business. Like once, once you can get people to jump, join up, leave themselves behind, like see the bigger picture and have a mission that like joins everybody together and that like everybody is truly in then you often see incredible performances and in the sporting world we see this examples abound where um, collections of players who individually might not be as good as another team for whatever reason have a reason or value to to do so um, and come together and, and and get it done so yeah and, and quote here um in the New York Times from one of the leaders of the two teams was, we united to make the impossible possible together. Let's talk about unselfishness and making the greatest feat in the name of everyone because everyone deserves equal credit. Cool quote. Yeah. In a lot of ways, it's not too different than Elliot Kipchoge going after the sub two hour marathon, right? Something that you would think was like highly individualistic, right? It's marathon, it's him. But if you read any of his quotes, if you watched any of his interviews, you would realize that, you know, the the whole time he's talking about his training partners that got him to this point, his coach, his pride in his country, like all of the people um, who helped him pace it through it. It was really this this joint kind of effort that like went beyond him and more of the boundaries of, of the, is this possible? We're going to team up to see, to see what we can do versus kind of, again, the individual going after it alone. So, okay. Now I want to, um, I want to challenge this hypothesis just a little bit. And, and it's not even like the hypothesis itself, but I guess the context in which people apply this tactic, let's call it. So there are instances when it is so clear that you are losing yourself because you are so swept up in a cause or some sense of meaning, in this case, their country. And um, that's great. And those instances are very real. But what do you say to the skeptic that says, well, you know, this person is claiming that they're doing this for charity or that they're doing this for a cause, but they're actually just saying that like, to make themselves feel good about an otherwise selfish endeavor. Um, or they're just saying that because it sounds like the PC thing to say they actually are doing this for themselves. And I don't know how I feel about this. That's why I'm kind of <laughs> suggesting that we talk it out. But I think the prime example is like the person that posts a gazillion times on social media about how they're running this race for this cause and it's really admirable, but you're also thinking like, dude, you wanted to run the marathon anyways. Are you just doing this to make yourself feel better about something that you were going to do for yourself? 
Yeah, there's that's a good point. I mean, there's definitely that, and there's definitely that justification rationalization that allows you to feel good or better about a decision. I think the way I would answer it is turn to some of the studies that we covered in peak performance in the sense that even making slight changes like, you know, portraying or calling uh, janitors janitors versus essential workers who are like... I think it was environmental health in that study, Steve. That was the term. The term they used was environmental health workers. Yep. So... And the same study was done with uh, people who pick up garbage, uh, Mm -hmm. I believe, as well, or a similar one. But, you know, when you just change that framing and get people to understand their value, their, you know, um, productivity, happiness, enjoyment in the workplace all goes up, too. And you might say, well, that's a small example. And that's like not climbing a mountain, obviously. But I think I think it points to the power of this effect is that if you can get people to buy in and th- and see that it's real, then it does have the opportunity to uh, enhance performance. Not to say that everyone who says, "Hey, I'm doing this for my, you know, father, mother, you know, whatever story you have," is is going to perform well and is doing it with legitimate reasons. But we're saying that it it has the power to enhance performance if it actually if that is actually the true reason behind it yeah and then i think the other thing there is that you can't like you can fake out your neighbors and your friends but you can't fake out your brain so your brain's gonna know if you're just weaving a story like that to make yourself feel better or sound good and it's not gonna allow you to really open things up whereas the more you're actually doing it for those selfless reasons, the more your brain is going to let you open things up. Yeah, you can't really fool your brain uh, to a degree. Um, there's some fascinating research that essentially shows, you know, the old adage, fake it till you make it. That works really well when things are easy, okay? When you have the skills to complete something, right? So I can, you know... Uh, fake it in in writing for example to a degree because i'm a okay writer or and you got me editing yeah <laughs> <laughs> i had to talk about being self ed or like egotistical yeah there's your <laughs> ego um but it, you know it, it fake it till you make it works when things are easy when it's within your wheelhouse when you have the skills to to take on that challenge but it doesn't work the more difficult it gets right your brain is is too smart if it gets really difficult and you're sitting there like, I got this, I got this test or I got this project or I got this race and you have no reason to have that confidence behind it, your your brain doesn't like you, you get no boost in actual real confidence. You get no boost in actual self-efficacy. You get no boost in performance from fake, from faking it. And I think that is the the same case here is that, you know, in easy stuff, Sure, it might help a little bit or it might make you feel a little bit better. But the reality is you weren't going to be challenged at all anyways. But, you know, in the hard stuff, whether that's running a marathon for you or completing some big project or climbing a mountain, I think when push comes to shove, like there is no faking it once the discomfort level get that high. So it's either real and it works or you're faking it and it's not going to help you whatsoever. Right. And I and it's not totally um 
black and white. Like there's a lot of gray here. And I think what I what I mean by that is in a lot of pursuits, there's going to be some ego and some genuine selflessness, and that's okay. Uh, like one example, for instance, that we're both really familiar with is putting a book out into the world that you think and truly believe is going to help other people start important conversations that go way beyond oneself. Well, on the other hand, not denying that it feels really good to put a book out into the world with your name on it and to have the relevance that comes with that and interesting opportunities. And both those things can be true at the same time. Um, I Matthew McConaughey, in his recent book, Green Lights, which I haven't read, but I'd like to because I just hear rave reviews about it. I, I heard him interviewed on a bunch of podcasts. The way that he puts this is that you want to find things where your selfish, self-serving ego also benefits a selfless cause in the world. So he talks about how everything he does, he gets a huge ego boost out of. He just chooses things that also help other people. So... You know, it's like, okay, if I want to get an ego boost, well, I could do X, it's going to help a lot of people, or I could do Y, that's just going to help myself, might as well do X. So for him, it's like, I could go in my garage and, you know, boost my ego by setting like some new athletic record and then share it with a bunch of people, or I could boost my ego by writing a book. And I actually think the insights in the book are going to help people more than a video of me with my shirt off. So I'm going to write the book instead. And I'm going to get the same ego boost from both, but I might as well help people. Yeah. I mean, that's that's another way to, to frame it. And I think that's a nice way of having the self-awareness to know kind of what drives you and ticks. Because, you know, we all possess different levels, we'll call it, of ego Um and different areas where our ego might pull us in stronger directions. So um, if it's something where your ego is pretty high and, you know, you know, you're not going to be able to transcend it or whatever have you, then, you know, it makes sense to point it in the right direction. And I, the thing I like about that is it's, it reaches to the humanity of the situation. I think a lot of times even we, sometimes get to the point where we get too idealistic in the sense that like, oh, we should do this and that. And it's true, but sometimes it's not possible to be that perfect. Exactly. And, um, and realizing that like it, it, many things in life are going to be a combination of those two things. And just because something makes you feel good doesn't make it a bad thing. Um, there's a lot of argument like, right, what is it, the altruistic gene that like part of the reason helping other people makes us feel good is because that's how we evolved as a species to both live in groups and survive and, and care about um, care about ourselves. I think a good litmus test here into like how much of it is like pure BS versus how much of it is real is because um, you often do see though, like in the personal development or self-help or coaching space, these like egomaniacs who do everything for other people. I think of like Bikram Yoga or um, forgetting who's the other self help guru, the guy that like had the 
coal walking heat baths and ultimately ended up killing a bunch of people. Anyways, you often see these charlatans in self-help that claim to have this mission to help all of humanity and all these other people. And yet they tend to be totally full of it. And I think a good test for this is can somebody admit that they're wrong? And can somebody very willingly acknowledge that other people might have different and or better answers in the same space as them? Yeah. So, I, and if I, you can't do that, then you should really ask yourself, do you really want to help other people or not? So like, you know, an example that I, I often hold myself to is I very rarely recommend... Don't Steve, don't get mad at me. And I hope our, our agent isn't listening. But I very, recom- very rarely recommend our own books to people. And not because like doing so feels bad, because I genuinely think, oh my God, our agent's going to kill us. Like There are often many better books for certain people's situations than ours. Um, and I think that like just having little check-ins like that with yourself are really good to help you. Like, Do you really want to help people or do you just want to feel good about yourself? And listen, sometimes I recommend our books, but I guess what I'm saying is like, it's certainly not all the time. So Lori, Ted, if you guys are listening out there, I, I do recommend them sometimes, just not all this, the time. This is why Brad fails in the marketing department and I, I, I handle that. Um, right, so- exactly. I'm like, go read Mark Epstein's book, not ours, but I digress. Um, yeah, you know, all this brings me, it, it brings up or reminds me of... Um, some research that is done on the quiet ego, which is essentially, you know, a a lot of times in this kind of space, we hear like silence your ego, turn it off, et cetera, get rid of it. It's the enemy, you know, Ryan Holiday's great book and excellent work. But um, a researcher psychologist, I think it's Haley uh, Wayment, if I'm remembering correctly, you know, likes to or found that it's it's almost better to picture the ego as this like volume dial that we that we can turn, you know, turn down when we need to so that we can like hear everything else that's going on in the world. And when it's turned up too much, like we're not picking up any other signals, any other information. It's only we're hearing our own ego and our own voice. Right. So the quiet ego is turning it down, maybe not all the way off, um, depending on the situation, but turning it down enough so that we have the awareness to, uh, you know, choose to direct our attention somewhere else, hear the hear what others are saying, check in with ourselves, and have some perspective. Love it. I think in one more way that is very helpful to do some of this um, and very much relates to the, the K2 Winter First Descent is just to do things in groups of people and in teams. And obviously, we're very biased because so much of our work is in a team. And I recently realized just how much... um, Forget performance, like how much I enjoy it and how much better it makes me feel to do stuff with you. So as some people know, Steve and I's next books, respectively, are both going to be solo books uh, for no other reason than we both cared pretty deeply about certain topics and decided we should just write those two books separately then alone. And um, we were talking about when our books are going to come out, you know, mine later this year, Steve's early next year, that we want to be in person for the launch of our solo books. And it's simply because it's so much more fun to do stuff like this together. And, you know, having this conversation and reflecting on it, I think it's more fun and it like releases some of the pressure valve. 
Because when you're alone with like a book that just has your name on it, like it's hard for ego not to get involved. Whereas if you've got someone else there, and even if the book's just got your name on it, but it's like a team game, you've got someone to kind of lighten the mood, poke fun at you. It just feels like so much less of a pressure-filled moment and so much more fun. And getting back to these Nepali climbers, if you watch the video, like these guys are having fun, like capital F-U-N. And by no means is it easy. It's freaking really hard what they do, but they're smiling because they're doing it with other people. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think you bring up a, a great point there in the enjoyment of it together. And it's it helps, especially, you know, I keep coming back to this, but especially when you're doing something difficult, you know, or you're doing something different, difficult or something that like has a potential to challenge your ego. Like when you're with someone else, you have that other person there to kind of kind of act as that outside influence to keep you in check. And no one remembers the medal or like the number one sales rank. People remember the relationships that they had along the way. So isn't that goofy how so often we get caught up into like these very like egotistical competition, individualistic desires. But then as we age and we look back fondly on parts of our life, even the things that we wanted, if we won alone, we genuinely like don't remember them as well as if we want as a part of a team. Unless you're like a sociopath. And they're out there. Like I've I've encountered some and those are the people that like just fire everyone that doesn't agree with them and they're like totally about themselves and they can be content that way, but most people aren't sociopaths. Yes. Yes, very true. Um all right, good. I mean, this feels like a good spot maybe to transition to the second topic we wanted to talk about which is just how neat it is that this cultural lineage and group of people that for so long had kind of gone hidden in the background in climbing, but has been the total backbone of climbing now has their their fame. Is there anything else before that, Steve, you wanted to add on this notion of selflessness, ego, teaming up, working with others on meaningful things? No, I think that that covers it. I think that was an interesting discussion that once again went in a couple different um, related tangents, but worthwhile as we think over these topics as we're talking about them. That's what we do. Maybe our podcast should be called like Worthwhile Tangents. (laughs) There there we go. Tangents for days. Um, So let's jump into it. You know, I, I think this is fascinating because, you know, I'm... From what I read, this is the first, we'll call it first descent of, uh, you know, Sherpas, essentially. In the Nepali, I should say, in the Nepali um, mountain ranges, right? Yeah, in so, the Himalayas. Ne- okay, so let me do a quick disclaimer. Neither of us are climbing fanatics. I spent like a summer in Nepal. I know a little bit more about climbing than Steve, but we're like a 0.5 and a 1 on the Richter scale of climbing aficionados. So... If you are an alpinist listening to this, please give us the benefit of the doubt. Yes, we are amateurs in this area, so we appreciate it. And if there's anything you need to correct, please hit us up um, and let us know. But anyways, it, it's fascinating because, like, you know, these are the uh, experts at this. And if you look at all the way back to, you know, when Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay went up, right? Of course, it's in the 50s. I believe, um, 
Hillary gets uh, uh, most of the credit at that point. Hillary gets knighted. Norgay, you know, his his uh, acumen and historical presence, I, I think, got a boost as time passed by and sentiments changed. But it's still fascinating that from there until up to this point, you still have this like underestimated, um, underappreciated um, in the public, at least undervalued notion that here are some of the best climbers in the world and they don't always get the credit they deserve. You know, the analogy I used is it it's like if Elliot Kipchoge or, you know, um, any of the East African runners, if we just ignored them for a little bit and just saw them as rabbits dragging the fastest European to time without understanding that they ran faster or were capable of running faster than the quote-unquote Europeans who were, were first. And, and without like spending days on this topic, because we could, um, there's so much like sociopolitical uh, stuff baked in here. Because a big part of that reason is the entire industry in Nepal, in, in large parts of like just like Indochina, Himalaya, beyond Nepal, Tibet... Um, Bhutan, like it's climbing. That's where the money's made. So if the Sherpa people were bagging all these peaks, they wouldn't necessarily attract all these Western expeditions and they wouldn't make money. So like I have a strong hunch that Sherpas could do all the first descents, but there's probably some pressure like not to because they want to bring in Westerners to try it because these climbing expeditions are the big source of revenue for these entire countries. Um, you know, having spent like a summer in, in the Nepal Himalayas and going up to base camp, which by the way, is as far as I made it and as far as I intended to go, but at base camp and I went in climbing season it is like a zoo. It's just packed with tents and expeditions of people that are attempting to climb Mount Everest. And like, they're all the same. It's like a bunch of like European climbers and then Nepali Sherpas that are cooking and carrying their stuff. Fascinating. You know, you know, um, I would be remiss if I don't mention the only thing that I have some semblance of expertise in this that I think is fascinating when you compare uh, European climbers and Sherpas is if you look at their physiology and this might have changed. I'm remembering this from grad school, mostly when I did work into altitude, but generally if, if you or I go up to altitude, right? The way that we adapt is we, our body creates EPO, which then increases our red blood cells, which, you know, increases our oxygen carrying capacity. Okay, almost as if in our bloodstream, our red blood cells are like we get larger trucks to deliver oxygen and remove CO2 and all that stuff, right? More red blood cells, more trucks, larger trucks can deliver faster. Um, That's not how it works with the Sherpas. They actually have um, an increased blood volume, I believe, and almost have what I would describe as a thinner blood with less hemoglobin, um, slightly lower oxygen carrying capacity, 
but it's as if the speed limit isn't 60 miles an hour, it's 120 miles an hour. So they can just, the blood just flows through there, right? So it's interesting that like we have these, you know, they have, you know, one of the reasons that they're so good at this is their body from living and being born through generations um, at that altitude has given them a very unique physiology, which is different from their Western counterparts. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I don't know as much about what's happening under the hood as you because I don't have the the same scientific background as you. But um, man, on top of the hood, just even like in my group that went to base camp, you know, I'm huffing and puffing as we get to base camp. I, I'm pretty sure it's like there's 50% of available oxygen in the air. And like the Nepali Sherpas as a part of the, the team, they're like smoking cigarettes, joking around, throwing a football. Hmm. Um, so there's definitely some real physiological adaptations that happen um, just based on the, the people that have inhabited that, that part of the earth for so long. So, yeah, you know, and I think it's it's almost a I mean, I think hopefully this pushes us in the right direction. Um, but I think, you know, I come at this from a endurance sport track and field running kind of background and appreciating the um, the just abilities and talent and work that 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 these guys and gals bring to it is just phenomenal. And hopefully this uh, launches you know, maybe that and, um, you know, makes it a, a better place, more recognition for them. Love it. Well, I think that's a good spot to wrap it, Steve. Um, unless you've got, you've got other tangents to, uh, to add, but I feel like we covered a lot of ground starting with a group of climbers that made the impossible possible by doing it together, leaving their ego behind we talked about how leaving that ego behind actually opens you up to the potential for peak performance. The paradox is you get the most out of yourself when you kind of forget about yourself. And then we um, we just spent a few minutes talking about um, how neat it is that uh, this group of individuals represent uh, an entire culture and a people that really is climbing but hadn't had much time in the limelight. Yeah, I think that sums it up uh, really well. I mean, I think it's just, again, a fascinating example at some of these topics on performance that transcend transcend sport, they transcend climbing, um, they apply generally across the board into other avenues. So take some time, think about how this might apply to your life and getting through difficult situations and different ways to quiet or turn down the volume on your ego so that you can be in a place where you have clarity for whatever you're trying to uh, perform at. And if you love yourself and your ego, don't necessarily beat yourself up about it. Just try to devote like your time and energy to get your ego boost in ways that help other people. You know, if my if I ever need brain surgery and my neurosurgeon is the biggest egomaniac in the world, but he gets off on fixing people's brain, well, I'd much rather him do that than be like you know, the head of sales for a tobacco company. So if you've got strong ego, you know, maybe get some coaching or therapy in the long run, but in the short run, try to channel it in productive directions.
Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.